Welcome to Act in Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and host. And today is a special episode on the podcast because I have the pleasure of introducing you to a new host who you will be hearing a lot more of in the coming future. Uh, I have the pleasure of introducing you to Eric Cohn. He is our new director of marketing and communications here at Acton. Eric, go ahead and say hi. Hello. Uh, Eric has a conversation that um, you will hear up on the podcast here in a bit that he recorded with Stephanie Slade about an article that she wrote on the national conservatism movement. Stephanie is a managing editor at Reason Magazine. Eric, can you give us a bit of a taste of what we'll hear in this interview? Yeah, it's a piece called The New Nationalism in which she examines this new thread of nationalist thought that has kind of taken over and really gained some purchase on the American right. And in there, we break down really what what actually is nationalism in this case and in this context. What does it mean? What's the agenda of all of it? And kind of not only the text of what is the new nationalism, but the context of what is this new nationalist movement. I think it's a very interesting conversation. I think you'll enjoy listening to this interview. I know I did when we initially recorded it. So without further ado, we will jump right into it. And as always, if you want to read more about this subject, I've linked articles and books that are all mentioned in this interview, plus more in our show notes. And those are published at blog.acton.org. I'm joined today by Stephanie Slade, who is managing editor at Reason Magazine, who has the feature piece in the April 2020 edition of Reason Magazine, the headline Against the New Nationalism. And she begins it by with this quote, nationalism is not to be confused with patriotism, George Orwell wrote in 1945. Both words are normally used in so vague a way that any definition is liable to be challenged, but one must draw a distinction between them since two different and even opposing ideas are involved. So I should like to begin by asking you, Stephanie, um, what is the difference between nationalism and patriotism And then is there any difference between that nationalism and what you identify as this new nationalism? Sure. I mean, of course, the answer is it depends who you ask, because as Orwell pointed out, and as always, he was very prescient, um, the the words are used in in a very vague way, especially the word nationalism. I think the word patriotism has a pretty solid consensus definition. Most people understand what it means. It has, a, it has a positive connotation, pride in one's country and one's homeland, a sense of, you know, wanting to see your fellow um, citizens do well. Uh, it's, a, it's a positive thing for most people, and it's a pretty widely understood, you know, the kind of sort of positive national sentiment that you would see expressed on the 4th of July, you know, with fireworks and hot dogs. Um, nationalism is a much, I think, less clear, and there's much less of a consensus around what that word means. And that is the problem. Uh, It's a problem because uh, it means that some people can say, I'm a nationalist. And then when you press them on that, or when you express some discomfort with what they might mean by that, they can fall back and say, oh, no, no, I just mean that I I love America. And I think we should be proud of our country. Um, But I think that there's a a reason that some people use the word nationalism instead of patriotism. uh, And it's because they, they really aren't just talking about 
being proud of your country or loving America or waving, you know, flying a flag outside your house. They're talking about something that has um, a much more robust policy component. And I would argue um, almost inevitably a quite illiberal uh, policy component. So in thinking of things in terms of classical liberalism, I would say this is not classical liberal. This involves big, robust government insisting on the subordination of individual liberty to the collective good, quote unquote, um, and things like that. Um, and it can also sometimes devolve even further into military aggression and wanting to go out and conquer your neighbors and demonstrate the, you know, your country's superiority. And it can also devolve into a sort of obsession with uh, racial purity at home, wanting to keep the outsiders out and, um, and, and insisting that your sort of ethnic makeup of your country must be protected from those who would um, sort of introduce impurities into the national environment. So I think that it can go wrong really quickly, I guess, is what I'm saying. The word nationalism can. And and so I think if, if all you really are is a patriot, you should say that you believe in patriotism. And as soon as you start talking about nationalism, uh, I, I, for one, am going to get pretty nervous about what that might mean. So with regard to that difference between patriotism and nationalism, would you say that it would be fairly well encompassed, at least in the American understanding, by an American concept of patriotism is almost an adherence to America as an idea? Um, while the founding fathers clearly were de- declaring independence and establishing a nation, there was this classical liberal idea really encapsulated in that, so that if America were to have become exactly like the Soviet Union, um, it would still be America by name, but the idea would have completely changed and the true patriot would have been an adherent to that original concept of what America is about, the pursuit of happiness as an individual right and individual liberty, as opposed to nation nationalism being a lot closer to the kind of my country right or wrong. Yeah, I guess I think that um, I think America in many ways is infused by very important ideas that were that were revolutionary. I mean, they were revolutionary at the time that that the country was founded on those ideas. But I think it's fair to say that that we are also there's also something a little bit deeper than just an idea. There is a culture that uh, represents what it means to be an American. You come to America and you you experience something that is a little bit different from what you might find anywhere else. Um, I think that culture is infused with liberal ideas. So so it's a little bit hard to distinguish between, is it about an idea? Is it about a culture? Well, I think it's both. I think it's a culture that is shaped by these these classical liberal ideas. We are an incredibly stubbornly independent kind of people. We have always tried to throw off tyranny and resist, you know, sort of authoritarianism. We've always believed in individual liberty and self-sufficiency. We've been entrepreneurial. We've been adventurous. We, you know, we sort of um, went west and blazed a trail and we care. We've always been the kind of people that we're out to find a way to strike it rich. And, you know, these are the things that people think of when they think of what it means to be an American. It, it, but it all sort of comes back. And we're also a very diverse and sort of pluralist type of society because we have always had people from all over who came here and made their home here and had to figure out how to coexist. So those are the types of things that I think uh, characterize the American culture. And there are ideas in that, and there's history in that, and there's the whole sort of, you know, um, stew of things going on there. But I think that it's a pretty clear, it's pretty clearly that, it's pretty clear to most people what is meant by sort of America is a little bit different from what you might find anywhere else in the world. 
So in your piece against the new nationalism, you excerpt a number of contemporary writers writing about this new nationalism. Uh, There's one that jumped out at me here. Uh, This quote, there is such a thing as a benign, even a salutary nationalism. It's from Gabriel Schoenfeld uh, in The American Interest, that benign nationalism was also, that term was also used by uh, Rich Lowry, the editor of National Review, and Ramesh Panuru, uh, also with National Review in a piece that they wrote about this. It strikes me that the word benign is doing a whole lot of the heavy lifting in that descriptor in the same way that a benign tumor is very difficult different from just saying tumor. Um, Do you you think that there's this, I I guess the question is, this need to identify it as benign, does this point to kind of the problems inherent in nationalism? I think so. I I think that um, the only way I can come up with a a definition of nationalism that is truly um, benign and benign in a sort of stable and solid way where it isn't going to degrade into something much more ugly um, is if we just consider nationalism to be literally a synonym for patriotism. But again, I think there's a reason that people have been using the word nationalism. And it's because that's, that's not really what they're doing. They really aren't just saying you should be proud of your country. You should feel some loyalty to your country. What they're saying is we need a, a strong, robust central government. We need people who are loyal to that government and are willing to sacrifice um, their own individual interests to what the government says is in the common interest. We should have um, high taxes and a redistribution of wealth to, to prop up American industry to help it outcompete foreign competitors. We should have restrictions on free trade. I mean, these are these are not the kinds of things that um, that would necessarily fall under anybody's definition of patriotism, right? So, so this is this is going far and beyond. Um, what I would consider benign. Um, the only way it's benign to me is if none of those things are involved. And at that point, I don't know why we're using the word nationalism anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, the, it's also something that would not have previously really fallen under the definition of even conservatism, as you highlight a lot of conservative thinkers and writers who are highlighting this kind of new nationalism, um, that it strikes me as kind of a conservative form of collectivism, because if we're pointing towards you know, the idea of nationalism, there's only really one entity that can speak for the entire nation, and that's the federal government in Washington, D.C. So all while at the same time inveighing against the kind of coastal elites that they see as part and parcel of the problem that they're indicting, they're also, you know, looking to, as you draw out some of the policy ideas, uh, most of them highlighted at last summer's National Conservatism Conference, higher tariffs, larger expenditures to support the American industrial sector, National Institutes of Manufacturing, and uh, from Hillbilly Elegy author J.D. Vance, a whole host of public goods and actually being willing to use politics and political power to accomplish these goods. It seems very much like a conservative form of collectivism. I completely agree. And it's a great point that you you make that what's where this nationalist sort of sentiment is bubbling up from right now is definitely on the political right. And that is startling because for, for years now, for at least two or three decades, if not much longer, conservatives have pretty proudly embraced a sort of Reaganite, classical liberal, uh, free market economics, free trade, individual liberalism, uh, you know, individual liberty, self-sufficiency, 
Um, these values were in, a huge part of what you would hear at CPAC if you went to the Conservative Polit- Political Action Conference, um, which is coming up um, this weekend, or if you listen to a Republican um, politician running for office or read National Review, the conservative magazine, or, or whatever, you're going to hear those ideas being um, being central to what it meant to be an American conservative. And so the fact that this nationalist impulse is bubbling up on the right. It's splitting conservatives. I think it's there really is a sort of schism happening among conservatives between those who are remaining committed to classical liberal values and that those who have moved in the direction of this collectivist nationalism and who are saying, you know what, I think some of them in some cases are quite explicit, actually, that what they are in favor of or what they're calling for is a rejection of those classical liberal values. They're saying things like, you know what, as conservatives, we tried that libertarian way of doing things, and it hasn't gotten us anywhere, and it's time for us to try something else now. So they're, they're pretty explicitly illiberal, actually. So talking about that political component of it um, under the section heading nationalism in practice isn't pretty. You begin that by saying one might object that these are all just theoretical proposals. Fortunately for those of us hoping to discern what type of alternative uh, this type of alternative might look like in the wild, there's a self-identifying nationalist in the White House we can look to, which is an element that I find interesting in this, that there's not just the, the text of these defenses of nationalism or of this description of this new nationalism. There's also the context under which it is happening. How much of it do you think may be motivated by kind of a short-term political interest related primarily to President Trump's program? I think that's a big part of it, yeah. I think that the um, impetus behind last summer's National Conservatism Conference and a lot of these books that have been coming out in the last few years about how we need to reclaim and revive the idea of nationalism uh, is no accident that that's happening right after Donald Trump uh, came to power. I think what's happening is there there's an attempt among smart conservatives to build an intellectual apparatus around this wild movement, this wild populist wave that, you know, like brought Trump into power that nobody saw coming. And there's clearly a lot of support around the things that he is saying and doing. And so conservatives on the right are saying, okay, how can we build a respectable sort of framework to explain what was motivating him and, and these these people who support him? Um, so I so I think that, that was that's part of the part of the um, the motivation or the inspiration for this. Um, and I especially think that's true because a lot of these people did not believe these things five years ago. Um, they, they were, if anything, eloquently arguing the precise reverse position in some of these cases. And so it seems pretty clear to me that there is a little bit of opportunism, political opportunism going on here. Well, that's, I, I'm reminded of the opening video of the 2012 Democratic National Convention, which included this quote, uh, we do believe you can use government in a good way. Government is the only thing we all belong to. We're part of different churches, but we're together as part of our city or our county or our state and our nation. This seems to me to be completely simpatico with some of these defenses of nationalism, that the government is the only thing we all belong to, and it's that all-encompassing nationalist entity there. I think that that's a pretty, um, it's, that's a way of looking at the world that has long been rejected by most conservatives. So, so you know, when, when people on the left, or the political left, um, get up and say things like, 
um, you know, government is just another word for the things we do together. People on the right have traditionally, I mean, again, at least over the last few decades, um, said, you know what, there are lots of ways to do things together. There are many, many countless ways in which we come together as a community, as a family, as a neighborhood, as a, as a city, um, as a church, as a you know, charitable organization to get things done. And so to try to um, boil down our identity to being just the fact that we are taxpayers to a particular you know, government with a particular uh, you know, jurisdiction is really, it's, it's sort of flattening out the, the richness of the lives that we all lead. And I think in a healthy in a sort of healthy society, your 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 identification with the government ought to be the least important thing about you. Well, and it also seems that it kind of ignores notions of subsidiarity, that people closest to the problems are probably the best position to address some of these issues, because doesn't it, by definition, a nationalist agenda has to elevate everything up to being a national issue? Right, right. And that, this actually was a source of some small amount of tension at last summer's conference. Um, there were at least a few people there, uh, including Patrick Deneen at Notre Dame, Notre Dame, who um, who is not exactly a classical liberal, um, but he even expressed some discomfort with what, what he was hearing. And he said, guys, you know, the people who wanted to make the, the main unit of analysis, the federal government, were always the, the progressives. Why are we following in their footsteps? We're supposed to be localists. We're supposed to believe in letting a million flowers bloom and in um, allowing people to form communities and sort of overlapping identity groups and working things out for themselves at a, in, you know, in this private sphere and at, at the local level. Um, so I was, I was somewhat heartened to hear that from him and from a few other people. Yuval Levin um, gave a good speech that touched on this as well. Uh, but at the end of the day, the overwhelming consensus at that conference was still support for um, sort of aggressive government intervention into the economy and into people's private lives. There's we kind of let off talking about some of the definitional issues there. And one of the things that has struck me not only in reading your piece, but in reading a lot of the other writing about this new nationalism is that it seems often to me that they're describing something that almost needs another term that I think I borrowed this from uh, the author Jonah Goldberg, that they're describing nationism and this idea that they believe the nation state to be the most ideal uh, political unit, at least in juxtaposition to kind of cosmopolitan global concepts like the United Nations or the European Union. Um, and in that sense, it, might that be this kind of like benign nationalism is to just point to the nation state as you know, the most functional unit of uh, political unit out there as opposed to kind of the programmatic nationalism that you've really described? I think somebody like Rich Lowry, who wrote wrote a book on this, um, would probably agree with that. I think that's probably what he would say he's trying to do. Um, and I, I'm of two minds on that question, because on the one hand, um, I'm not saying that we should uh, abolish all nation states, get rid of all borders. We're all just global citizens of the world. And, you know, everybody is like everybody else. And there should be no differences or no different sort of cultural diversity on the planet. That's not what I'm saying. Um, on the other hand, I don't actually see very much evidence after reading Rich Lowry's book and listening to these other many, many um, smart people who are advocating for nationalism, that they have a clear sense themselves about what makes 
a nation state a good thing? Because um, on the one hand, they, they'll say things like, well, it was a nationalist triumph for, for the United States of America, the 13 colonies, to break off from their, you know, the imperial sort of um, – the from from the from England, so to break off and declare independence and and form an independent nation state. But then they'll also say it was also a nationalist triumph that uh, the Union under Lincoln was able to preserve the 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 United States as one country and prevent the Confederacy from breaking off and forming its own um, nation state. Uh, and and when you listen to them talk about other countries around the world, it, the same thing sort of comes out over and over again, which is that nationalism and nation states are good when they say they're good and bad, um, or attempts to form new nation states are bad when they say they're bad. Um, and that doesn't, I don't think, it's not a very helpful way of looking at the world, actually. So um, so I guess I'm, I'm just, I, I'm, I don't want to be totally dismissive of the point they're making about the sort of post-Westphalian uh, world in which we have independent governments um, representing independent peoples who have a, a sort of self-determination. They, they're self-governing in that way. That can be a great thing, but I just don't see a really very coherent philosophy being articulated here after doing a lot of reading um you know, reading a lot of people who want to make the case that there is a coherent philosophy, I'm just not really that convinced that there is. Yeah, you you reminded me of uh, an argument in Yoram Hazoni, the political philosopher who's also written a book about nationalism, uh, that his contention that essentially the moment nationalism crosses a border, uh, it ceases to be nationalism and now has become imperialism. And it reminded me of a similar frustration that I had with Steven Pinker's book on the Enlightenment, which what I think Pinker does in there is to say, you know, everything that I like is the Enlightenment and everything that I don't like isn't the Enlightenment. And I think we see this line of argument in a lot of things uh, that the, you know, all these things that I don't like uh, from one crowd to say, well, that's all liberalism. Everything I don't like is liberalism. Or in this case, a lot of definition of everything I like is nationalism and everything I don't like is not nationalism. It seems to be a very flexible kind of, as we've, I think, discussed a lack of a clear definition of what this even really is. Right, right. So they'll say something like, um, if it's, uh, nation states are good when they stay within their borders. As soon as the nation state um, aggresses against its neighbor militarily, then um, it's no longer a good thing. But it's also that's not a mark against the nation state because now they're they're doing imperialism. Well, nation states are the ones who do the imperialist sort of warmongering. So um, I just don't think it's that clean of a distinction. There is, I guess, a thing um, that they're pointing out when it when it has when it comes to looking at the nation state. As as opposed to larger sort of transnational or supranational governing institutions like the UN or the EU or the International Criminal Court or whatever the case may be. Um, I think a lot of these writers are reacting against a sense um, that we are building more and bigger and further away governing apparatuses. Um, and they're, they're saying, you know what, at some point, we can't have a global government. That That's not going to make sense. We need a government that's closer to the people, um, that understands the culture of the people that it's representing and that's making laws to govern. Uh, I think that's fair. I, I just don't understand why we would stop at the nation when we could come down to the state or the local level or even, you know, something closer to the neighborhood or the individual level. So the general concept of nationalism, would you would you say that nationalism kind of nationalism qua nationalism is 
in and of itself at least problematic, if not bad? Or is it just kind of an amoral concept like violence? So you could have a police officer you know, uh, use violence to stop someone from attacking somebody else. And you can argue that that's a good use of it, whereas the violence being perpetrated in the first place would be bad. Is it, you know, is nationalism problematic in and of itself or is it just kind of in the way that it's expressed? Well, because there isn't a widely accepted and shared definition for the word nationalism, unlike violence, I think, which is a concept that we basically can, you can turn to the dictionary and you can look up the definition and I think almost everybody will understand and, and have that same idea in their mind. I, I'm not sure how true that is about nationalism. I mean, even many of the nationalists at the conference last summer and any of the, many of the people who have written books making the case for nationalism, they disagree with each other about what that means. Some are, for example, in favor of a robust military presence that can sort of maintain America's global uh, leadership and hegemony by, you know, projecting our power around the world. Other people are saying, you know, a true nationalist would bring the troops home, spend resources here, let the rest of the world send them for themselves. They, they, they can't even agree among themselves about what the word means or what it connotes, right, what, what the sort of connotations are around it. So it's harder for me to say, it's harder for me to answer your question um, because I just, it sort of depends, well, it depends what you mean by nationalism. Um, I, think, I think you could sort of imagine, I, I could probably come up with a definition of nationalism that would be amoral. Um, but I think the way that it is practiced, what is meant by virtually everybody when they use that term right now in this world, you know, again, based on all of the, the reading I've done, um, it's I'm just hearing some pretty frightening sort of concepts baked into that word. So you began with, uh, we began talking about a quote from George Orwell. And as we're concluding here, I want to bring it back to that. So the quote, from Orwell uh, is from his essay, Notes on Nationalism. And when you read that essay, Orwell's essentially saying in there that there's this concept that I want to discuss, but there's not, at least to his understanding, a very clear uh term for what it is. And he says, I'm going to call this nationalism. But when I read it, what I draw out of it, what I think he's really talking about is identity politics. Um, Do you think that this is some just a, a different expression of the same identity politics trend, I guess we could say, that really has been influencing our kind of national conversation for quite a while now. I, I do. I think that that's a, an interesting way of looking at it. I think I've made that point as well. Um, people on the right tend to, to, to poo-poo the idea of identity politics. And my uh, my claim is that they're engaging in it. Because what is identity politics? Well, part of what it is is saying that the identity of people is what matters as opposed to having uh, sort of universal rights and liberties that apply to everybody. Um, and so somebody on the left might say, well, that means that a, a gay person has more um, status in society than a straight person. A black person has more status in society than a white person. Um, what the sort of American nationalists are saying is that uh, an American has more status than a foreigner, and we should be able to um, essentially use the coercive power of the state to ensure that Americans do better than everybody else. And I, I just, I mean, 
they might think that that's a, uh, an idea that's more defensible than slicing and dicing the society into smaller identity subgroups. But I, I think it's it's still identity politics at the end of the day, and it's it's still problematic for many of the same reasons. You, in referencing that kind of coercive power of the state in this kind of concept of using nationalism to pursue this common good and nationalizing the concept of the pursuit of happiness, which is, I think, an inherent human right. Um, it just it reminds me of a quote from C.S. Lewis, of all the tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It may be better to live under robber barons than under moral busybodies. It strikes me as relevant to this conversation about uh, the new nationalism. The piece is against the new nationalism. It is in the April 2020 edition of Reason Magazine. Stephanie Slade, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. As always, thank you so much for listening today. Our podcast team loves putting this show together for you every week, and it's so encouraging to hear back from our listeners. Feedback is super important to me because it lets me know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most, and also how I can improve this show to make sure you're getting the most out of it. You can reach our team at actinline at actin.org, or you can call our office at 616-454-3080. And if you like our show, you know what to do. Leave us those ratings and reviews on the Apple Podcast app and subscribe. Act in Line is on YouTube, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you listen.